The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales. Episode 56, Past Rhymes. Isabel paused from writing her dissertation and allowed herself to daydream. The camping trip had been a wonderful week. She'd needed the break away from the lab, away from masks and apprehension. She needed to relax, and she and Rosamond had been treated like royalty. Any doubt she'd harbored about whether she and Lucas were suited to each other were also dispelled during the holiday. The Scottish dragon and the Russian phoenix were clearly kindred spirits, if somewhat unlikely ones. In her usual self-effacing, self-sabotaging fashion, Isabel had tried to persuade Lucas that, bloodlines aside, she came with more baggage than anyone should have. Transforming on a cliff overlooking a serene lake near their campsite, she turned to Lucas and said pointedly, I'm called the Laidly Worm for a reason, you know. Part of my name comes from French. It means ugly. We have some things from French, too, Lucas replied. Pastries, mostly. We even adopted the name of one as Napoleon. Showy, rather flaky, good with tea. Like the Russian winter, we consume his namesake with fatalistic determination. Lucas struck a military pose and knit his brows together severely, then grinned. I'm serious. I'm ugly, flightless, like a snake or a worm, not a dragon. You don't have wings, but you're far from ugly, Lucas flamed into the firebird and lightly traced one of the golden scars running through the emerald and azure scales along the side of her face. I think you're magnificent. You are hopeless. I don't need hope. Hope is for fools who are unsure of things. I have eyes, so I am sure you are magnificent. You may lack wings, but how do you know you can't fly? Asian dragons fly through the air as if swimming, weaving their bodies to catch and create air currents. They don't have wings. Have you ever tried to fly? He asked this question in an indulgent voice like a parent teasing a child about some food that they were certain they didn't like as soon as they'd heard of it. Well, no, but, Isabel began, but I was always told worms couldn't fly. By whom? Your brother, him with bitcoins for brains. Your father, who convinced you you were guilty of matricide as a newborn. Or your stepmother. Lilith rarely says two words to me, and anyways, she's left my father and run off with her goat yoga instructor. Her what? Pigs will fly before I believe that is a thing. Goat yoga. Or maybe she ran off with a goat. Or her instructor is a goat. Owen does tend to babble these days, Isabel shook her head. In any case, 
My brother always used to rub it in that I was hideous and ungainly, that if I could fly I might not be so bad, but worms were too lowly on the supernatural taxonomy for such abilities. Lucas made a rude noise and reached around Isabel with his wings, touching the tips together behind her back without touching her. Fiery tracings of wings unfolded as if from her spine. There you go, how you say, training wheels, now fly. I can't, try. And anyways, the other part, my scales are covered in poison. I'm toxic. Toxic, poison, please. I'm Russian. Vodka is a health tonic to half the population. To the other half, it's a blood component. You just keep talking and making your little excuses and I promise I'll stop you when you say something that actually makes me even slightly nervous. Besides, in my changed state, I'm made of fire, remember? Rock, paper, scissors, poison, fire, hmm, I think I'd win that one too. So my toxic wingless enchantress, stop arguing and fly already. I'll try on one condition. So Scottish, even losing, she negotiates. And you called Prince Ivan a horse trader. What's your condition? We fly over the lock and then we dive. It's a lovely night for a swim. A swim? Water? Oh no, I'll drown, Lucas flared with wide-eyed terror. So I attempt valiantly to fly and fail, plummeting to the earth in certain death, because you, my hero, are afraid of a puddle? Isabel turned in melodramatic indignation and jumped clear of the cliff. She knew that if she couldn't fly but cleared the shore, the lake was rather deeper than a puddle. It was a tarn fed by ice melt. She'd live, though she'd have sore muscles in both states for quite some time. She coiled. Either this would work, or she'd do one hell of a belly flop. Lucas swooped after her, regretting his challenge and ready to give himself to save her. Isabel uncoiled. For the first time, Isabel flew, dancing sinuously through the air like it was her sacred temple. Lucas followed, giving her space to experience her new abilities. Then they dove. The lake was suffused with light that was not extinguished when Lucas disappeared beneath the surface. Lucas drowned only his fear and followed Isabel to the deepest part of the lake, and then they shot together back into the silver and purple evening sky. The young lover's entwined blaze of glory did not go completely unnoticed. Get a room, Koshche muttered. Vasily smiled and handed him a marshmallow, hoping he would put it on the rather lethal stick he'd been whittling. What's this? The deathless one eyed the little confection with profound suspicion. It's a treat. You put it on a stick and turn it near the fire until it toasts and melts a bit, and then you eat it. Why would I want to do that? Because you're my friend and appreciate my efforts when I try to show you kindness? Vasily asked. Koshche harumphed, but did as the domovoy directed. Marshmallows were a revelation. They also stuck his mouth together so he couldn't complain quite as much, Vasily reflected. Bonus. Back in the lab, 
Isabel was writing like her life depended on it. She wanted to get her dissertation done and handed in to Professor Lyle before she and Lucas left. He had gone out of his way to find her a safe place to live and continue her work through this past year, and for that she would be forever grateful. She was nearly done by the time she'd gone on the camping trip with her friends. She'd come up with the way to tie her research together while on holiday, and made a few notes, and now she was working these insights into her conclusions. Contrary to the usual avoidance behavior doctoral students were supposed to exhibit when it came to their theses, oh, I'll just take myself off to the cafe to read one more article, one more book, just in case I've missed something, Isabel's focus on her research was her avoidance behavior. It would soon be time for her to tell her last story. She'd promised Jack she'd tell Thomas the Rhymer. The easiest road past this kind of perdition was to tell him the edited version and let him off Sir Walter Scott free. But Isabel rarely took the easy way out. Either she'd have to lie to him outright, or she'd have to tell her best friend that somewhere in the past he couldn't remember, he may well have been a rapist. The company gathered at Isabel's beloved seaside cottage, where she had told several other tales. She saw that Diar had fixed things up a bit, new windows with good glass and properly fitting sashes, and some stained glass accents, a remodeled hearth with a better draw, the fire practically lit itself in happy anticipation of a worthy home, new shelves full of books, fresh paint, tapestries and pictures on the walls, including an icon or three. Was that Crochet or Vasily's handiwork? No matter. She'd thank them all. But no one would thank her for the pain she'd caused this night. But Jack wanted the true tale of true Thomas, and so she would give it as far as she knew. Before we begin, I must ask you all a certain indulgence, Isabel began. Please don't say anything until I have finished my tale. As you know, some of the old stories and songs treat of subjects that are hard to hear, and Thomas of Erseldun was a real man whose exploits are woven into the cultural fabric of my homeland. If there is more to the story that I do not know, please fill us in after I have given my tale so that Jack might learn what he cannot recall. Everyone agreed. Lucas reached over and gently squeezed Isabel's hand, and she began. In the 13th century, there was a young man who hailed from Erseldun, or Erldon, near where the river leader meets the Tweed. Thomas was his name, and while not a bad sort, he was something of a layabout and a dreamer. Because of a sojourn in fairy which left him with the gift of prophecy, he came to be called the Rhymer in his own lifetime, though his hereditary name among the border folk may well have been Lermont. Vasily's eyes widened for a moment, his bushy red eyebrows rising in surprise. Isabel noted his reaction and continued. He did not use this name often. Adopting the fashion of the time to be named by his place and then by his peculiar gift, Thomas of Erseldun, and later, as I said, Thomas the Rhymer. 
The state records exist in which Thomas the Rhymer leaves his lands to a surviving son who bore his name just before the turn of the 14th century. But though there is a memorial stone in the place where the Aildon tree of the ballad stood and where Thomas first met the Queen of the Fairies, no grave has ever been found. Thomas lay on the grass of Huntley Bank, daydreaming in the warm sun of late morning, when he heard the sound of fifty silver bells and nine, drifting on the breeze over the lee, he sat up and saw the most beautiful woman riding toward him. She was dressed regally in green velvets and silk brocade shot through with silver and gold, like leaves touched by dappled sun and moonlight both. Her gold and copper hair flew out behind her like a banner as she drew closer. Thomas saw that her horse was caparisoned in small overlapping jeweled plates, the silver bells adorning the fine beast's harness. She was arrayed as a queen of the hunt, with a hunting horn slung across her graceful body, a quiver of arrows on her back, and a bow lashed to the pommel of her saddle. Thomas rose and intercepted the wondrous apparition at the Aildon tree. Queen of heaven, a blessing, I pray you, he breathed, head bowed, taking her to be the mother of God. Arise, mortal youth, I am none of such high degree but the queen of Elfland. Can you not see I'm dressed for pursuit? My quarry is the wildwood deer that travels between our realms. No noblewoman of grace and breeding would travel these roads alone, lady, or hoyden as you more likely are, Thomas cried, taking her horse's reins in one hand and pulling her roughly off her horse with the other. And here, Isabel paused and swallowed, accounts differ. The variants of the collected ballads more or less follow the edited version of Sir Walter Scott, in which the lovemaking between the pair was consensual, with the Queen warning Thomas that if he but kissed her, he would have to return to Elfland to serve her. If the oldest medieval accounts have merit, she warned him instead that in violating her, he would destroy her beauty and change his destiny and that of his land through knowledge of the future. He dismissed her warnings and heedless of her protests. Isabel paused, sensing the tears coursing down Jack's horrified face as a falling brightness against his shadowed profile from the corner of her eye. She thought she heard a sob, but no one interrupted. Thomas was said to have taken her seven times against her will that day until long after the sun went down. Each time she wept and begged to be left alone. When Thomas finally took a look at his victim in the fading light, he was initially repulsed. His conquest had the aspect of a corpse, as if he had killed as well as ravished her. Her eyes were sunken into tearless shadows, her shining mass of hair matted and gray, her body ashen and bruised, and her fine clothes were tattered rags. While all victims may degrade in their abuser's eyes, Thomas at last felt overwhelming horror at what he had wrought against one so fair. You owe me a blood price, mortal man, for you have used me ill. Ride with me now into my realm and serve me until I say your debt is paid. The queen's voice was terrible in its pronouncement, and she looked like an avenging wraith. 
It seemed to Thomas that the horse's mane tolled, no longer with silvery chimes, but with his funeral bell. Thomas had left in him no tongue to argue, no will to protest, no strength to fight, and so they went. For three days and nights they rode over every bog and craggy bit of ground. Thomas was sure with every step the horse took that this length would see the animal pitch him to his death or trample him as he fell off beneath the churning hooves. For three days and nights he neither ate, drank, or slept. Please, he begged, I am mortal and I will die. And I, Thomas, am not mortal. Is it more just to make me live with what you have done forever? They rode on until they came to a fair wild garden with several paths leading from the verdant clearing. Fruit trees and bushes of every kind met Thomas's eyes and springs of clear water trickled down the sides of the valley and fed the lush growth. They slowed, and he tried to pick some of the ripe, delicious-looking fruit. Do not take that of your own accord, or you will be trapped in this realm forever, the queen warned. Thomas would have wept, but no tears came. The garden was a crossroads of sorts. The queen pointed out a hidden, brambly path, barely visible to one side. This is the road to heaven, she said, a difficult road for the righteous to tread, and few take it. She pointed to another road, this one wider but spare, leading into high and forbidding mountains. This road is passable for the careful and contrite who have changed their ways and leads to wisdom and happiness after tribulation. She pointed again to a road grassy and gently rolling, but meeting further along with a wide, cleared highway. The road through ignorance and indifference to hell, she said. The final path led to a castle on a hill and seemed to wind up through the forest. At the start of this path, there was a magnificent apple tree laden with fruit. The queen reached up and plucked an apple. As she did so, her bare gray arm took on a healthy color once more, all her bright beauty restored. This is the path to my kingdom, where I am queen and my lord is king. You will serve me there until I release you in payment of your debt, but we will speak in your tongue that my kind will not know what is passed between us or what we speak of. I give you this apple as payment against your wages, Thomas, and with it a gift. You will always speak true and never lie, and you will have sight into the future. Your predictions will come to pass, and you will be true Thomas from now on. She expected him to take the apple gratefully and eat it. Instead, he weighed it in his hand and said, You think you've given me a boon? Truth is not so useful in business. If I sell a beast, should I catalogue truly all its flaws? If I court a maid, is the bare truth without flattery going to win her heart? The queen's withering look told Thomas exactly what she thought of his courting, and he ate the apple in silence, feeling it sustain him while coming to understand that, from then on, truth would be his constant companion and bind him to better action. Despite the many strange sights that met his eyes, 
Thomas stayed in the Queen's service and was happy in Fairy, thinking that time stood still there. One day, though, she came to him, dressed once more for riding. She had a green velvet coat for him and soft, finely crafted boots. "'Your debt is paid, Thomas. You must return home. Dress yourself for the journey, and I will convey you to the border of your realm.' "'But I've barely been here a handful of days. Have I not served you well?' "'You have been here seven years, Thomas.' Soon the fiend will come from hell for the tithe my kind must pay for our exclusion from grace. I would not have the payment include you, despite your past use of me. You have truth and prophecy. Take also this harp. Though you speak not the tongues of fairy, you will have its music. And she took Thomas back where the roads met in the enchanted garden so that he could cross into his own realm. He spoke only truth among men, gaining notoriety as a prophet within his own lifetime and acquiring a fine castle and a laird's honors. One day, when Thomas was an old man, a servant came rushing to him saying that a white heart and hind had emerged from the forest and were waiting together on the grounds. Thomas went out and followed them away from his castle, and together they passed under the spreading canopy of the great tree at Aildon towards the crossroads in the glen and disappeared. Some say he died, though his body was never found. Others say he returned to fairy at the behest of the queen and dwells there still. Isabel fell silent. Jack was a haunted figure curled on the flagstones of the floor. I'll give Thomas his true ending, Diarmid said. Like you, Isabel, and probably Lucas too, you are not the first generation of the immortal whose powers you bear. There's a reason my sister came here to live and die and why, as an immortal, she lives quietly on the borders of fairy. It's a self-imposed exile and tradition. She bears the scars of the rhymer's actions down the generations of her female line. The best of the rhymer after his time in fairy lives in Jack. He is honest to a fault, and it comes out in his craft. He can play lines of code like harp strings, but he is not guilty of the crimes of his forebear. Jack sat up. What happened to the rhymer when he returned to fairy with the two white deer? He didn't relish the thought of meeting him, regardless of how time, telling, and truth may have changed his ancestor. His stories and prophecies live on, Diarmid said carefully. Uncle, did you... Jack began, unwilling to shape the question. Diarmid put his hand to an inside pocket of his greatcoat, he felt the shaft of a broken arrow through the fabric and patted it reassuringly. Did I what? I'm the governor, tinker to the gods. I don't destroy. I make. Sometimes that means I make things right. The Decameron shuffled. Pen of hearts. Mootsburg. Even if Jack does not bear the guilt of that Thomas, he cannot return home. He saved first his friend, then this world, by deceit. He broke the terms of the queen's original gift. He lied. The way back to fairy 
is barred to him. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful storied place, the ancestral lands of the Sinemuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.